0: Jeremiah 29, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 14. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, and to the priests, the prophets, and to all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah and the Queen Mother, the eunuchs, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem. The craftsmen and the metal workers had departed from Jerusalem. The letter was sent by the hand of Elasa, the son of Shaphan, and Gemariah, the son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, sent to Babylon, to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. It said, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, from which I sent you into exile. Thus far, God's inerrant and infallible word. Well, some of you may know the story of Rip Van Winkle. It was a story written in the 19th century by Washington Irving about a man around the time of the Revolutionary War who goes into the woods and he meets up with some strange people and he drinks their concoction and he goes to sleep for 20 years. And when he wakes up, it's now after the American Revolution, and the world has changed in ways he can't even begin to conceive of. Pictures of King George have been replaced by pictures of George Washington. And the currency is different, and the kinds of things people are talking about are completely different from the world that he went to sleep in 20 years earlier. Let's go back 15 or 20 years to sort of date it, The first batch of iPhones were sold 15 years ago this summer, if you can think back to life before the iPhone. The Defense of Marriage Act was still in effect. There had been no Windsor decision from the Supreme Court, no Obergefell decision. The modern cathedral that is the media and academia and uh, increasingly uh, woke business leaders You know, if you think about it in ancient times, the cathedral told you what was acceptable to think in your town. And now the modern cathedral of of these uh, three forces were maybe commending pride flags, uh, but they weren't, um, it wasn't full blown woke capitalism yet. No one knew what rapid onset gender dysphoria was 15 or 20 years ago. If you had used the term birthing people, or chest feeding, no one would have had any idea what you were talking about. In other words, back in those times, you could believe your eyes and your ears. Uh, Things were what they appeared to be. There were no pregnancy care centers being vandalized. Centers weren't having to spend thousands and thousands of uh, ministry dollars on security uh, for the centers. Fifteen or twenty years ago, the church and the culture were neighbors. They were friendly neighbors. Maybe the relationship wasn't quite as synthetic as it had been 40 or 50 years ago when it was like two neighbors that had a nice pretty lawns and there was a little three foot white picket fence that went down between them and they passed vegetables back and forth and baked goods and recipes and things like that back and forth across the fence. Fifteen years ago, if you fast forward to then, there was kind of a neutral tolerance for each other. The, the church and the, the world and the culture living side by side, not really embracing like they used to, but not hostile either. Now, the times in which we live in 2022, the church has a new cultural neighbor, and the neighbors don't like us. <laughs> And the neighbors are just waiting to report us to the HOA for some infraction that they are certain we are going to commit any moment. It's been said by one wise person, you may not be interested in the cultural revolution, but the cultural revolution is interested in you. And so we ask the question as we, uh, the church in this strange new time for us, we say, what in the world? should we be doing now? How do we respond in the light of things like the Dobbs decision and whatnot and the resulting pushback and blowback from the world and the the advance of this uh, sexual revolution that just when you think it can't get crazier, somehow it finds a way to get crazier. What in the world should we do now? I think there's a good word to us in Jeremiah chapter 29 from this 7th century B.C. prophet. The things that God's people were undergoing 2,600 years ago is not that different from what you and I are experiencing. Now, they woke up in a completely foreign land, but they also woke up in a culture that that they didn't recognize. It was like nothing they had lived through before. It was a word to a people who thought that there was a fast, quick, easy way out of their problems, and God shows them that he is at work, and that they have work to do. I want us to look at three quick points this morning as we uh, consider uh, uh, Jeremiah 29. The first of these is what I'll call exile's origination. Now, you remember Israel and Judah had separated after the death of Solomon, and the northern kingdoms had fallen to the Assyrians in 722 B.C., And now we're about 120, 125 years later in the southern kingdom. And the Babylonians have come to uh, Jerusalem and they have besieged the city. And they have carried away the king, the king's mother, all of the court officials. They've carried away the leadership class, 10,000 people, including craftsmen and tradesmen. They've decimated the army. Uh, You don't want to leave the metal workers and those who can literally rebuild your army uh, and give them new weapons. So they carry all that away. They carry away everything that is portable inside the temple. The temple wouldn't be destroyed for another 10 or so years when it would be burned and, and raised to the ground. But at this point, the Babylonians carry away everything that can be moved uh, that isn't bolted down uh, in the temple. As I said, the king has gone away. His his very young uncle has replaced him as sort of a a local vassal who is expected that his main job is to send tribute back to Nebuchadnezzar. It is a dark time. And this leadership class, the best and the brightest, the people who got things done in Judah, have all been carried off uh, hundreds of miles away to Babylon. And it is like they have been transported to a different planet. Things are different. The topography is different. The seasons are different. The food is different. The language is different. The way things just smell, the way the water tastes, all of that is different. And they wonder what in the world has happened. And why do we find ourselves here? And look at verse 4. After this introduction about how this letter came to be carried by these diplomats going to Babylon, this, this letter comes from Jeremiah, he sends it along with them. And in verse 4, when the letter begins, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent, I have sent you into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. The temptation would have been to have blamed this deposed king, to blame his leaders, if only they had followed this policy or that policy, if only they had strengthened the army in different ways, if only, and God says, you are right where I want you. You may be a thousand miles from home. You may not understand the language around you. You may feel like you have been plopped into a culture that." Is, is unnerving and is unsettling and you can't quite get your mind around the way people think. And God says, this is exactly where I want you. In this place, in this time. You, you think you're a long way from home. You may know the experience like the captives did, the Psalm 137, which was written during this time period when the captives say, how can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? It is it is different, and we don't understand it. And friends, the temptation is to think that God is some sort of short-order cook. And like a, a, a cook who is in the kitchen, and the orders are coming fast and furious, and he's having to run here and there and deal with circumstances he didn't expect. No, we are right where he would have us. He is the sovereign Lord of all, who knows when a sparrow falls, who knows every hair on your head, and he has made us for this time and for this place, and especially if you are older in here this morning, and so you've seen even more change over the course of your lifetime, the temptation is to think, maybe I've lived too long. I just don't recognize this world. I'm not sure I want to be a part of this world. Friend, let me say to you, you have not lived too long. And God has work for you to do yet still in the world. So when we, we don't glide over verse four when the Lord says, I have sent you to this time and to this place. Now I want us to spend most of our time this morning in verses five to nine on what I'll call exiles instructions. Because again, we want to know, what do I do in this exile? How do I live in this strange new world? How do I adapt? How am I productive and, 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 and profitable for the kingdom? And how do I not lose my mind when it seems like the world around me has? And look at what uh, God says to his people uh, beginning in verse 5. He says, build houses and live in them. The temptation if you went, uh, were carried away in exile you wouldn't have had long to pack up your things. You you throw some things into a suitcase, as it were, and you're you're marched off and and you know, go in a great caravan to Babylon, and uh, you 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 settle there in what we'd call a refugee camp. And the temptation would be to think we are going to get out of here as fast as we can. Uh, we are going to stay in tents. We are not going to hang pictures on the wall. <laughs> We are, not going to, we are not going to plant gardens. We're, we're not going to beautify the landscape around us. We are going to get out of here as fast as we can. And if you uh, go back to chapter 28, do that this afternoon, this Hananiah, the false prophet, tells them, we're going to be out of here in two years. This is just a little blip. It's a little hiccup, and uh, things will be over quickly. And God says, actually, I want you to build a house Some of you have been through renovations recently or think about even building a house from scratch. That takes a while. It's not a quick process, but God says, oh, you've got time. (laughs) Build a house, settle into it, hang pictures on the wall, plant trees in the yard because you're going to be there long enough to enjoy them. He says plant gardens and eat the food from there. I think this is pointing them to, you know, don't just stay in your little enclave and eat the foods like you used to have from home. This is your new home. This is the new place uh, where you're going to be. And so uh, for for that matter, plant gardens and eat their produce. Uh, Learn to like the things that are around you. Find those things that you can celebrate in the culture. And more than anything, beginning in verse 6, he says carry on with your family life take wives and have sons and daughters take wives for your sons give your daughters in mares that they may bear sons and daughters multiply there and do not decrease one of the things we see in the history of the world that demographers watch when people are encouraged about the future they start having babies (laughs) and they start having big families And when people are concerned about the world, when wars break out in places, I suspect if you could know what the real fertility rate was in Ukraine right now, you would find that that rate has fallen off almost to nothing. But beginning nine months after the beginning of that war, uh, the maternity wards are going to be empty for a while because people are pessimistic about the future. And God is saying to his people here, no, actually, you need to start having babies, And you need to settle in, and you need to thrive in this strange new place where I've put you. People have quit having babies, for the most part, in Japan. There won't be a Japan in another 100 to 150 years. There won't be a Russia in another 100 to 150 years. They're not anywhere near replacement rate of their population because people are discouraged about the future. There's nothing, in a sense, to live for. And God says to his people, though, no, you have lots to live for. You have important work to do in this place. You didn't come to Babylon to wither on the vine and to die away, but instead, reproduce. I mean, he goes into such detail in verse six, and he hammers home the point. And see, you wouldn't start having babies like that. You wouldn't follow that command unless you're confident that God knows what he's doing and that he has this under control and that he is the sovereign Lord of all. And so to have children in that culture was an act of faith. I would say to have children in this culture, this brave new world culture in which we live, is an act of faith. It says God has promised he will be God to, to me and to my children, and he will provide for their needs And God is doing a work in the world through his people. And so, uh, verse 7, Jeremiah goes on and says, Seek the welfare of the city. Now, understand what he's saying. He's not saying seek the welfare of Jerusalem, the place where you want to be. No, seek the welfare of the last place in the world you want to be, which is Babylon. You know, often this verse is bandied about by um, cool, hip church planners and skinny jeans and uh, who like, you know, craft beer and artisan coffee and those kinds of things. And this becomes a verse for justifying, oh, you get to go live amongst people that you kind of like and you're sort of like them anyway. And what uh, Jeremiah is saying is, no, these people that you don't want to be around and you want to be a thousand miles away from them, you move toward them, and you seek their welfare. You, you unpack your belongings in these houses you're going to build. You settle in. You grow the local vegetables. You become a blessing to the city that is around you. Again, this is an act of faith. It requires us to say, Lord, I can't see what you're doing. I can see two years out when we're going to be going back home. But if Hananiah is a false prophet, and he's lying, and we're going to be here 70 years, that means if you're an adult, you're probably going to die there. You're going to die in that culture. And God says, I sent you here, and, and I want you to seek the welfare of this city. The first place that begins, I think, is in praying for that city. Not just lamenting, not just in a holy way cursing what the city has become, uh, coming before God in doing that, but instead, God says, if you want your welfare to be good, then it's going to come through this city, the last place in the world you want to be, the last people that you want to be praying for and living around, and I want you to seek their welfare. The people of God are going to have skin in this game. This is not just an academic exercise. This is not just theory. This isn't, we're going to go live over here in our little ghetto and enclave um, and watch the world go to hell in a handbasket. No, God says your welfare is connected to their welfare, which means you've got to be woven into and integrate in with them. Because in its welfare, you will find welfare. In Verses 8 and 9, look, look on beyond that. It, it, it becomes important that you listen to God. Friends, there, we have never needed to know our Bibles better. In verse 8, thus says the Lord of hosts, don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. And do not listen to the dreams that they dream. I did not send them. It has never been more important that we be able to discern uh, the hyenas and the jackals from the Word of God. Um, it is so critical. Think about in Revelation with uh, the seven letters to the churches. It, to the letter of the, to the church at Pergamum, uh, uh, Jesus writes to them, he says, I know that you dwell where Satan's throne is. I mean, you are at the center of the furnace. You are out there at the tip of the sphere. And yet he chastises them for believing in false teachers. And so too, friends, we have never needed to understand the difference in the pure wheat of God's word from the chaff of so much that passes as folk religion around us. The welfare that we seek for the city for the people around us, for, for the people who are increasingly so different from us, the welfare we seek for them, first of all, is real and true peace, the peace that comes through faith in Christ Jesus, through being washed in his blood, through a risen Christ who reigns over every square inch to whom all authority in heaven and earth uh, has been given. That means it's going to be important that the church stay on its very narrow mission, even as Christians have a very broad mission in the world. God has gifted the people in this room in so many different ways, and he's put you in different contexts, and you're in different neighborhoods, and you've got different co-workers and extended families and relatives, and God has given you uh, many opportunities to shine as lights in an increasingly dark place. But in order for you to be equipped to do that, that means the church must focus on the things that God has given the church to do exclusively, to preach and to teach and make disciples. And so there are lots of good things that Christians ought to be doing in the community that the church would want to support and come alongside of and other Christians come alongside of, but that's different from the work that the church uh, has been given to do. If anything, the thing the church needs to be doing in this strange new time is, is cultivating a distinctively Christian culture. A church has never shined, a group of Christians in a particular place have never shined more brightly than they do as this world gets darker and darker. And so we do have a Christian culture to preserve because we want the world to be blessed by that. And so if you'll play along with me for just a second, as we think about the metaphor where we said there was a white picket fence separating the church and the world in times past, that fence increasingly needs to be 12 feet tall, and it needs concertina wire strung all over it, and we need guards walking that all the time. But, and be careful that you hear this, as much as we need that tall fence, we also want big Wide gates that says welcome to uh, the victims of the enemy. Uh, We sang uh, even in the hymn this morning about our call to war to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And so more than ever, we need to be a place that welcomes the stranger, that welcomes the people who are different from us, who don't know our culture need to be more than ever the church who um, follows these words that Jim Boyce wrote and another pastor updated in recent years. You may have seen it on the cover of church bulletins before. To all who are weary and need rest. To all who mourn and long for comfort. To all who feel worthless and wonder if God even cares. To all who are weak and fail and desire strength. To all who sin and need a Savior. This church opens wide her doors with a welcome from Jesus, the mighty friend of sinners, the ally of his enemies, the defender of the indefensible, the justifier of those who have no excuses left. Brothers and sisters, that will require us to be present in the world and present with the people around us, with the victims of the enemy. I love what one pastor said, the church in the world is a colony of heaven in a country of death, a colony of heaven in a country of death. It's going to require us to listen to people, to understand what, what are they saying and what is the thing that they're saying behind what they are actually saying. Because there are people who are going to be hostile who would like to argue with a fence post. But there are also going to be those who are seeking and who genuinely are looking for a Savior even though they can't put it into those words. It's going to require us to respond wisely. And that, I'm pretty sure, probably does not mean on social media. It is not getting into Facebook arguments. No no one was ever beaten into the kingdom of God by Twitter uh, uh, tweets and, and direct messages. Instead, it is loving the victims of the enemy. It is being, as one person has said, one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. Brothers and sisters, there are going to be strange people walking into our churches. There are going to be people that we don't quite know what to do with. And yet, more than ever, the church needs to be that community. Some of you know the name of Rosaria Butterfield, a pastor's wife. She was a lesbian women's studies professor and is now the homeschooling mom and wife of a pastor in Durham, North Carolina. But she said very clearly to the church, she said, I lost my community when God saved my soul. She, she lost the tight-knit bonds of that community, predicated on sin as it was. Nevertheless, it was a real community for which the human heart longs. There will be people coming through these doors in the years ahead, perhaps in the next months and next, uh, the next year or two, who are victims of the enemy's lies. And, and if I can be really blunt, They're going to walk in here, and you're not going to really be sure, is that a guy or a girl? And they may not be sure either. And the thing they need, along with the gospel, may be simply human touch and a hug from someone who's not trying to get something from them. That is the glorious mission that we have been given in this dark place. But lastly, let me say that we need to be ready to be hated for Christ's sake. Uh, It is tempting to think if we just are nice enough, and if we just take the hard edges off the truth of sin and our need for a Savior, that the world will tolerate us, and they'll like us, and they'll be nicer to us. Ask Rick Warren how that worked out when he was asked to pray at one of Obama's inaugurations, and or give a benediction, I think, and um, he ended up having to be dropped from the program because he had sometime in the past preached a Christian sexual ethic. Or Max Licato at National Cathedral in the last few years. Or even Tim Keller. Now, I have a lot of disagreements with Tim Keller on a lot of things, but give the man his due. No one has worked harder to speak the truth of the gospel and the truth of the scriptures into um, urbane, sophisticated Manhattanites uh, in the place where God has put him. And yet he then is given an award by Princeton Seminary but is so protested that he can't receive the award and give the speech he was going to give. Jesus told us that a servant is not above his master. And Paul writes that all who desire to live a godly life in christ jesus will be persecuted while it's nice to know the promise of romans 8 that if we suffer with him we'll be glorified with him it still doesn't really feel that good in the moment but i want to encourage you to think back at one of the big themes of the book of revelation where do you find the martyrs in the book of Revelation? They're always right there beneath the throne. They have the best seats. (laughs) They are the ones that get to sit up front right under the the very throne of God. And so, yeah, we're not in the place we thought we were going to be. We're not in Mayberry. We're we're not in a world that is friendly to us. We're actually just like the Jews in Babylon. Babylon. What Phil Rikin said about them is true for us. He said they weren't captives. They were missionaries. They had been sent maybe against their will off to a distant place. But they were a city set on a hill. Friends, think of that glorious vision at the end of the Bible and indeed little glimpses throughout of the nations streaming to the king at the end of the age. And the church is that beautiful representative that points to King Jesus in a dark culture. There are going to be people that come into our homes, our our children's friends who have never seen a house where mom and dad are still married and they sit down and the family eats a meal together and they talk about the most important things of life. They may not have ever eaten a meal where people aren't all looking at their phones. We're going to have coworkers and, and people around us who don't understand the common grace wisdom of the Sabbath and of the Lord's Day, who have never seen functional marriages, who don't understand that God's commandments are for our good. And so we have to walk in that narrow path of being in the world, against the world, for the world, and yet not of the world. Well, as we, as we wrap this up this morning, look finally in verses 10 to 14. God says to Judah, this is not going to be over quickly. As I said, the false prophet in chapter 28 had said, this is going to be over in just two years. And there is a temptation that comes to every one of us as it came to every exiled Jew in Babylon that says, you know, if we just vote right in the next election, if we just uh, support this cause, then then the lie that the people of Babylon believed is we can make Judah great again. And friends, God says, no, this is not going to happen in two years. This is going to take a work of God's spirit. And God says, I am working this plan for your good. Look in verse 12. He says... Um, uh, then you will call upon me and come and pray to me and I will hear you. Perhaps the reason our culture is in the place it is is because God's people have not prayed. We've not prayed like it mattered. And so God is using things that he hates to accomplish what he loves, which is to hear the prayers of his people. He is using sin sinlessly. And we would then come to do what um, God wrote about in Second Chronicles, that if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. And God gives them the assurance in verse 12, you will call out to me and I will hear you. This is not a 50-50 chance that you're going to do this and maybe I'll hear you. You know, this is not writing a letter to Santa Claus at the North Pole and hoping it gets there in time and hoping he reads it and hoping he can do something about it. This is God saying, we're going to do this for 70 years and you're going to be tempted to think that I have abandoned you and that nothing good is coming out of that. And God says in the midst of that, no, I hear you. And he says, oh, and, and I'm actually going to be found by you, declares the Lord in verse 13. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you. And Christ will one day do that. We were put out. God says, go away in the garden. He said that to Adam and Eve. He said, get out of my presence. And he invites us to that eternal city, to that heavenly Jerusalem. It's why worship is so important week by week. Because you think about it, God's word to the world was go. And worship begins each week, come. Come to me. It is God summoning us to himself. That is the wonder that we get to see in the world these days. Julian the Apostate was the last pagan emperor of Rome. He found out about the power of Christians when he wrote these words. He called them the Galileans. He said, these impious Galileans not only feed their own, but ours also. Welcoming them with their agape, they attract them as children are attracted with cakes. While the pagan priests neglect the poor, These hated Galileans devote themselves to works of charity and by a display of false compassion have established and given effect to their pernicious errors. Such practice is common among them and causes contempt for our gods. Julian only ruled 18 months. He said on his deathbed, You Galileans have conquered. He knew the inevitable effect of the march of King Jesus. At the end of the Fellowship of the Rings, Frodo says to Gandalf, I wish it need not have happened in my time. And Gandalf says, So do I, my dear Frodo, and so do all who live to see such times. But that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given us. And for Christians, we have to first ask, Who has given us this time? Who has put us in this place? Who has equipped us by his spirit? Who has triumphed over the cross and the grave and is now ascended at the right hand of the Father? Who has poured out his spirit? We're in a new relationship with the culture. But Jesus still wins. The outcome is still the same. What we're undergoing and learning to make peace with is the experience of most Christians in most places in the world through most of the history of the church. So it's not a time for us to beg the coach to take us out of the game, but to thank the Lord that he has put us into it. And so back to the question I asked at the very beginning, what in the world should we do now? Let me close with these words of uh, the Apostle Peter in asking Aaron, answering that question. He writes in First Peter 2, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to extend. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject to the Lord's sake for every human institution, whether it be to the Emperor is supreme, or to governors is sent by him, to punish those who do evil, and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen.